Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Jillian. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled Diagnosing Climate Change, Making the Connection Between Climate and Individual Health. In this episode, we'll be trying to take the sometimes vague or existential risks associated with climate change and turn them into direct and clear risks as they apply to health and human disaster. To this end, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sadir, who spoke about this at a recent conference and conducting our own mini literature review, as well as recommending a few tools of the trade. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Hi everyone, I'm Amita Sudhir. I'm an emergency physician um, in Virginia in the United States and I've been primarily an emergency medicine educator for most of my professional life, but in recent years have gotten more interested in public health and climate change um, and the intersection of those things with emergency education. Dr. Sudhir, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on a bit of a landmark decision, I'll I'll call it, in 2021. So 2021 marked the first time that a patient in Canada was diagnosed with climate change. What does that mean and why is it important? So this was done by an emergency physician in British Columbia, Kyle Merritt, and he did this because he had a patient who who had asthma and her asthma was significantly exacerbated by the wildfires that were happening at the time. And he realized that there really needed to be a recognition of these health events being connected to climate events, because otherwise you go through the records and you see that there are all these patients who are diagnosed with asthma, but you don't necessarily make the connection with what's happening in the larger world around them. And in order to make that point, he put climate change on the chart as a diagnosis. And if I remember correctly, it was actually a supporting diagnosis, the way that, for example, if you have a heart attack, high cholesterol would be a supporting diagnosis. So I think that's really key. It may not have been the original cause of her asthma, but it 100% contributed to her being in the emergency department that day. What are are some of the ways that climate change is impacting human health and the healthcare system right now? What are some trends that you're seeing? You know, I think most people are aware that climate change is a threat, and we kind of think of it as a threat that's going to happen in the future. Yeah, it's going to be really warm in 2050, or the Maldives are going to be underwater by 2050. But climate change is happening right now, and it's happening to us. I think those wildfires and their impact on people's breathing is one example, but there's so many other examples. The recent heat wave in the U.S. Pacific Northwest and in British Columbia, for example, um, was really unprecedented high temperatures in an area uh, where people were not used to that. And it caused an exponential increase in the number of visits to emergency departments for heat related illness. And those kind of increases are really not only unprecedented, but emergency departments are not prepared for them. Another example is Lyme disease. So in many parts of the United States and Canada, 10, 15 years ago, Lyme disease was pretty unknown. And now it's starting this inexorable creep into areas that just didn't have it. And it's not just because they're getting warmer. It's also the complex interplay of ecology, of animal habitats, of animal populations changing, habitats being encroached upon. And it's all kind of part of this larger picture of climate change. Can you tell us a little bit more about that connection between climate change and then it sounds like communicable disease spread? 
So both the direct effects of climate change and some of the factors that are contributing to climate change contribute to infectious disease spread. So as temperatures rise, certain animal populations do better and certain do worse. So it really upsets the natural ecological balance. Um, similarly with rainfall, uh, rat populations, for example, do really well when there's unprecedentedly high rainfall, which is happening in some areas. And when you upset the natural ecological balance between different animal species, it allows uh, zoonotic diseases, so viruses or bacteria that are endemic in certain animal species to then jump to other species, both because they need a new host, because their original host may be dying, or because one of those other animals is somehow keeping those bacteria and viruses at bay, um, or just because their habitats are encroaching on each other and animal species that previously didn't interact are now interacting. And that also applies to humans. And so as humans expand into wooded areas and turn those areas into suburban homes, for example, humans become um, more exposed to wildlife and more exposed to ticks that are infected with the diseases that wildlife have. A lot of these episodes of human habitat encroaching on animals are often the nidus for viruses like COVID, for example, to jump into humans. Interesting. So there, there is a potential connection between climate change and maybe even the next pandemic. I think that's very fair to say. So while it's hard to tie COVID specifically to climate change and say this impact of climate change is what caused this pandemic to happen, I think we're always really just one step away from the next pandemic. If you look at where all the emerging infectious diseases come from, a very large proportion of them tend to come from things that are endemic in, in animals, often bats or rodents that then jump to humans, which are not their normal host. Um, and so bats, for example, carry a huge host of viruses and any one of those viruses could cause the next pandemic. So the more that we upset temperature and climate and the more we encroach on animal habitats, the closer and closer we're getting to that virus that has the ideal conditions to cause the next pandemic. So I think looking at COVID, you know, it's not necessarily an isolated event. It could very well happen again in our lifetimes and the next one could be worse. What does this mean for the healthcare system then? What part of hospital operations, for example, might be vulnerable to these increased health impacts? So I think a big thing about emergency medicine is that we often see things that are maybe not yet common. And so we're kind of the canaries in the coal mine in recognizing many of these illnesses. So if you have a person come in, for example, with Lyme disease into an emergency department in an area where it's previously not very common, the physician or nurse that sees that patient may not recognize that they have Lyme disease. So a big part of keeping up with all of these changes is keeping the workforce educated. And then, of course, you have the impacts of these more catastrophic events like heat waves or hurricanes, um, some of which are a little bit predictable and sometimes they're not predictable at all. And we're not always resilient enough or prepared enough to bring staff to those areas to make sure that people know how to deal with the health effects of a heat wave, for example, if they've been practicing in a cold part of the world for 20 years. So not only are there increased impacts in terms of numbers on the hospital, but you're basically saying that some of us will have to relearn our job or shift our environmental knowledge 
And I really like this casting the emergency department as a bit of a detector. Has that been done before? Is that part of like the global public health information network or anything like that? A lot of these diseases are reportable. Um, and so Lyme disease, for example, is reportable. Many infectious diseases are reportable. But I think if you're dealing with a new infectious disease, I mean, there, there are mechanisms to look for patterns in in um, you know, a rise in respiratory illnesses, for example. But I don't think we as physicians are educated as to what our role is in that. So even if we did detect a pattern before anyone, any public health authorities did, you know, we're sitting around drinking coffee in the break room and talking about it, but that doesn't necessarily always result in a phone call from a physician to a public health official um, saying, hey, I'm worried about this. And so I think giving um, hospitals a more formal role in some of that detection really could help. And I think that also for physicians and disaster managers to communicate more would really help because sometimes we don't understand what it is that that side needs to do. And our role in it may not be apparent to everyone. And so I think a lot of that cross-professional communication in preparing for climate change is going to be really important. What is it that we could be seeing and what is it that we need to communicate to uh, emergency planners to make sure that they can help us? On that note, we are still at the time of recording in the midst of, of COVID-19 response. What have we learned maybe from even past pandemics or past increases in infectious disease that might be applicable right now? So from where I sit now, you know, almost two years into the current pandemic, it is very hard not to be pessimistic about what we have learned. You know, I think many of us look at the pandemic planning that was in place before COVID started and what's happened during this pandemic and think that we could have made a much more concerted global effort to combat this together. And I think that has a lot of applicability to climate change in general, not just its health impacts, because we're still in a situation where it's every country for itself. And we haven't yet recognized that if we don't work on this together, we're all gonna perish together. Borders are extremely porous. Diseases don't know political borders. Um, and I think that there could have been more of a recognition that we need to have more of a global vaccine effort, more global policy. And I think all of that applies very directly to climate change. Um, if we don't work on this together, we'll all fall together. So what can be done? What still needs to be done? What can we kind of bring into the future? So I think on the level of physicians and hospitals and the healthcare system, I think education, I think for all of us to understand what our role is in being sentinels of the health effects of climate change is really important. Um, what our role is in communicating with other professionals that interface with us and who are gonna be key in planning for climate change. I think the more people who become aware of their personal choices, the more they might care about policy, but ultimately it's policy where the major changes need to be made that's actually going to slow warming temperatures and uh, carbon emissions. Is there anything that needs to change in the way that healthcare is delivered to meet these increasing threats? Or is more, faster, just what we need? I think a big thing, and I, you know, this may be different in Canada, but in the United States, we don't have 
great access to primary care. Um, and I think that having a population that is at baseline healthy means that that population will be more resilient to the impacts of climate change. So for example, if you have a hurricane or a heat wave and you have people who are already unhealthy, they are more vulnerable to the heat. So we know that elderly patients who live alone, for example, are, are more vulnerable. So when you think, um, still within the healthcare system, but beyond just an emergency response. I think the baseline health of our populations is gonna become more and more important in the years to come because it's about making those populations more resilient to any additional impact that they're gonna suffer from either a catastrophic event or just kind of general infectious disease. And we saw that in COVID. So obesity is a huge risk factor uh, for dying from COVID and obesity is both part of the cause and effect here with, you know, you know think about food systems and climate change. So people are eating these you know, high meat diets, a lot of corn, all of these things, A, contribute to rising temperatures in the globe, but also make you more vulnerable to the effects of those rising temperatures. And so um, it's not just about an individual's nutrition, but again, the, the effects on the whole planet. Healthy people, healthy planet. I like that. In your mind, what does a climate resilient hospital or healthcare system look like? Yeah, I think that there are two there are two aspects of this. One is it, it would have a staff who are very aware of the health impacts of climate change and their role in recognizing those, treating them, and their role in trying to influence policy. So I think that is kind of a bigger picture of resilience. Of course, there is a whole conversation to be had about the logistics and the architecture that make a hospital resilient. Um, and then where do you get your staffing? So I think that's more across the healthcare system as a whole. And maybe that's an area where we need to think globally as well. Like how can we mobilize physicians? You know, if you have a 10 times increase in the number of patients coming in for heat related illness on a weekend, your staffing is not going to be adequate. How can you quickly mobilize staff from another part of the country or in some cases for some disasters, another part of the world? And I think all of these things are worked on in smaller groups and there are ways to do this, but I think we need a more concerted effort and every hospital needs more of a plan. I don't think we have that. Like if you look at COVID in the US, for example, states that are having a wave will call in the National Guard, but it's always at the last second. It's not, well, we anticipate that in three weeks, we're going to need X number of physicians and nurses. It seems like it's very much a reactive request for help while we can predict some of these effects. So I think the other thing that would make a hospital or a whole healthcare system resilient is really thinking about what the threats are and what the best way is to manage them. So that early detection and analysis, a little bit of forecasting or predictability built in the system, and then, of course, the ability to rapidly expand or share staff across jurisdictional boundaries, all of that sounds like increased collaboration and, and information sharing. What other information can you share? Where can people go to find out more about this? 
So if you're really interested in the health impacts of climate change, a great starting place um, for some scientific literature is the New England Journal has a specific page dedicated to a collection of their articles on climate change. And I think that's a good place to start. And then if there's an area that interests you, I think that article will lead to other articles and you can read more about it. Um, the physician Kyle Merritt, who um, diagnosed climate change in British Columbia, has a organization called Doctors and Nurses for Planetary Health. And that's an interesting website to look at to kind of learn more about how people who work in the healthcare system can get involved in treating the planet, I guess. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sadir. Really appreciate you making that connection between an obscure, hard to understand threat and individual health impacts. I think that is really what is needed is that personalization of risk to, to increase awareness and action. Thank you for having me on. Well, I loved that episode. I love talking about health and emergency management. Grayson, what did you think? Yeah, I think this idea of putting a health lens on climate action is probably really important and a very relevant one at the moment, and I wanted to find out more. So we did a little bit of a literature review, and I chose to review three articles to get us started. The first one called Climate Change, a Health Emergency by Drs. Solomon and LaRoque. The second one, The Imperative for Climate Action to Protect Health by Drs. Haynes and Evie. And Prioritizing Health in a Changing Climate by Dr. Salas, Molina, and Solomon. Now, all of these articles had a similar theme. It was taking the threats of climate change, comparing them to health impacts and health system impacts, and then ending with a call to action for physicians and healthcare workers to, uh, quote unquote, take off the white coat and join the fray. And uh, the first one, climate change in a health emergency, starts off by framing the effects of climate change as fundamentally a health issue. So acknowledges the health industry's contribution to greenhouse gas emission and waste creation and calls for greener hospitals, but most importantly, calls on healthcare professionals to help move climate change from that existential crisis into the realm of clear, understandable risks, uh, focusing on air pollution, insect-borne disease, heat stroke, and for physicians and healthcare professionals to use their expertise and their status to start impacting policy. The second one, Imperative for Climate Action to Protect Health, spoke more about climate impacts on health systems as opposed to individual health impacts and made the point that climate change will create more vulnerable populations and vulnerable populations have worse health outcomes. So this is basically a compounding impact on already strained health resources and could turn into a very long-standing mass casualty incident. In fact, the World Health Organization estimates over 250,000 deaths annually starting in 2030 due to climate change. And the World Bank estimated that over 100 million people would be forced into poverty by 2030. The final one, prioritizing health in a changing climate, really makes the connection between climate hazards and specific organ systems in the body, which I thought was an interesting way of, of framing it, you know, air pollution to the lung organ system. And then, of course, like all of these articles, ends with that call to action to physicians and to healthcare workers to take up the mantle of climate action. What did you find out, Jillian? 
Yeah, I took a look at um, two reports. The first one uh, talks about wildfires and the second uh, looks at hurricanes and climate change. So for the first, um, the report was called Wildfires, Global Climate Change and Human Health, released in November 2020 by Rongbin Shu et al. And so the authors first off say, you know, there's projections that show that uh, wildfires are going to become worse and worse. But as the wildfires increase, there's also the potential that um, we'll see an increase in excess deaths and injuries due to burns, heat stroke, wildfire smoke, and mental health effects. So quick definition here, when experts say, you know, excess deaths, what they're saying is that there's additional deaths occurring above and beyond an expected amount of deaths. So the authors then go into a few different ways of explaining the health impacts of wildfires and wildfire smoke. So they talk about direct, short-term, and long-term health impacts. And for direct impacts of wildfires, they're kind of what you would typically think of, maybe injuries to first responders and firefighters, as well as anyone in the direct path of flames. For short-term health impacts, the authors recognize you know, some degree of uncertainty due to the strength of data, but suggest that there is a consistent association of wildfire smoke increasing the risk of death for up to four days after someone is exposed to wildfire smoke. So pretty big implications there. And then for long-term impacts, and I found this very interesting because um, it's maybe something that we forget about, um, but one study, you know, researchers followed up on health outcomes 10 years after people were exposed to wildfire smoke during the 1997 Indonesia forest fires. So the authors, Kim et al., they found that individuals had poor results for lung capacity, general health, and physical function compared to those who are not exposed. To kind of apply a pediatric lens to this, and this is a quote, exposures to wildfires in childhood was associated with an increased likelihood of mental illness in adulthood. So again, looking at those long-term impacts. Um, and then related, uh, wildfires were also shown to decrease academic performance in children. So uh, really interesting to think about different types of downstream impacts of wildfires and wildfire smoke. What impact this has for, for us as emergency managers is that, you know, the, the authors emphasize evacuation plans are important. They protect life. But as you can see through um, what I've just mentioned, they also protect our communities from short-term and long-term health effects. But the authors also call similarly to the authors that you were talking about, Grayson, that um, healthcare providers should be, you know, educating the public and they should counsel patients on the risk of wildfires and risk reduction strategies. Yeah, and then kind of the last portion here of, of the article is they talk about recovery. Um, they don't frame it like that, but so I'm adding my lens to this, but um, they mentioned that individuals should be aware of contaminants like fire retardant, uh, wildfire ash, uh, potentially dead animals, that kind of thing after wildfires, uh, and be careful of drinking water and things like that because they can be dangerous to human health. So uh, a great article, and they make some similar points as Dr. Sadir and the articles you reviewed, Grayson, uh, around mitigation and curtailing global climate change as well. So the second article that I took a look at uh, was by James M. Schultz et al. And they were speaking about the worsening health gap due to disasters in their perspective piece, Double Environmental Injustice, Climate Change, Hurricane Dorian, and the Bahamas. 
They make the point that with disasters and disasters worsening, marginalized populations are often the most exposed to hazards and can experience greater levels of injury and loss. So the authors make five suggestions. The first is to revise building codes, neighborhood design, and essential infrastructure, especially for communities that have a high proportion of substandard housing. The next is to bolster the healthcare system to withstand increasingly intense hurricanes. And I think we can generalize, say, increasingly in intense disasters. The third point is to enhance warning systems, ensuring the equitable access and the I'm going to say reachability for equity deserving populations. The next point is to increase public engagement in emergency and disaster preparedness, as well as community cohesion and, and social connectedness, especially for those households and communities where members have special medical needs. And then the last piece is, to, is a call for healthcare clinicians and profession, professionals to collaborate more with climate scientists and public health professionals. Overall, I found that the suggestions are fairly standard for us to talk about in the emergency and resilience discipline, but that's not to say it's not valuable. In fact, I think it's great to see it uh, aligned and, and being talked about in the healthcare discipline, especially when there are so many calls for collaboration across sectors. So the health impacts, I think, are clear. It was a really helpful exercise to point out individual and population and system level health impacts. And the call to action is there. But the question that I was left with was, what do we do to start addressing this? And there is a recent article entitled, uh, actually, it's a, an entire handbook uh, by Health Canada that was published in 2022, entitled Health of Canadians in a Changing Climate. And uh, chapter 10 was all about adaptation and health system resilience and has some key messages that I would like to leave you with today. So number one, the effects are already being felt. This is not a future threat. This is a now threat. Number two, a health lens is needed. Number three. We're behind. And related to this, uh, it talks about the fact that we continue to treat the symptoms and not the disease. You know, many health authorities are not considering key drivers of vulnerability for specific population groups and therefore may not be addressing important aspects of adaptation for people disproportionately affected, such as First Nations or Métis people or racialized populations. Uh, and then it talks about the leadership role for health. You know, health authorities do need to clean up their own backyards first and start greening the hospitals, making their impacts lower, as well as taking a leadership role in policy and politics and protecting Canadians from climate climate change. And then the final point it makes is that we can't do it alone. There are tons of intersectionalities and different impacts that uh, different organizations and agencies and industries have. And this is going to have to be a get through it together situation as Dr. Sadir alluded to. And on what you can do, I'd like to also chat about a couple of tools of the trade. Uh, the first one is from the American College of Physicians, and they have a climate change toolkit that you can look up and we'll put in our show notes. And it has useful things such as pre-made slide decks, posters, key messages. And one of them stood out uh, to me in particular was uh, key messages around individual health impacts in plain language. So that uh, very 
easily communicatable risk impacts for the general public. And that would be a good one to have in your back pocket in the future as we continue to have to deal with this risk. And then the other one, if you want to get involved, is what Dr. Sadir was talking about, is that Planetary Health Alliance. Uh, you can join up. I've already joined up. I encourage you to, to join up and become part of the change we need to see. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Sadir for sharing our time and expertise with us on the topic of planetary health. Thanks for listening. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. This foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund for yourself or with a group, and once it reaches 10000 it can start distributing funds to other organizations. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. And this year's focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. This episode was also brought to you by our partner, the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode, we're featuring a podcast called That's a Thing, who has created a short audio clip, which I will play now. Hello and welcome to That's a Thing, a sometimes belated, already outdated guide to your teens, tweens, and everything under 20. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. Every month we have a conversation across the generation gap about media, pop culture, society, the internet, that kind of thing. Karen is my mom, and she's old. (laughs) I am her daughter, and I am young. Together we are one human being, here to share with you. Sometimes we bring in another human being who is Elizabeth's brother, John, to do a deep dive into memes and stuff like that. Hi. Thank you, John. Uh, We were named the Outstanding Kids and Family Series at the 2020 Canadian Podcast Awards, so we have that going for us. Yes, and we will brag about it until the day the podcast ends, because I am petty. (laughs) You can find That's a Thing in the podcatcher of your choice. That is That's a Thing question mark exclamation point you can also find us at albertapodcastnetwork.com is that everything i think that's it thanks sweetheart bye you've been listening to an epic podcast production a proud partner of the international association of emergency managers canada and a member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.